Birth, the Forgotten Feminist Issue podcast was founded by me, Alicia Staines, maternal health lobbyist, birth nerd and mother of five. I share evidence-based research along with reflections from women who've birthed, researchers, fellow lobbyists and other maternal health professionals. I want to change the culture around birth and maternal health care and I want to get women inspired to embrace birth and motherhood in the feminist movements. If you find value in the work I do and you'd like to connect further, please consider becoming a Patreon of this podcast by heading to patreon.com forward slash Alicia Staines. Welcome to episode 23 of Birth the Forgotten Feminist Issue. Today with me, I've got Liz Wilk. She's a private practicing midwife based in Toowoomba in Queensland. She was actually the first midwife in the country to access Medicare. I wanted to talk to Liz about the history of Medicare and how it's evolved, um, but also interestingly, why she decided to get into private practice before Medicare even came along. So do you want to share a little bit about your journey, Liz, into private practice and subsequently Medicare and then, you know, having um, a pretty big stake in private midwifery around the country? Yeah, well, Alicia, I guess that it's it's pretty interesting because even though I was always interested in private practice, I almost ended up in it a little bit by default. Um, when I when I was a student midwife, there were a number of midwives around me that were working in private practice that actually worked between home birth and had visiting access into John Hunter Hospital. And that was sort of prior to the insurance collapse in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it always seemed to me that those midwives had kind of, I guess, the best of all worlds. You know, they could provide care to women um, both in hospital and out of hospital. They could provide care that was truly aligned with what the woman was wanting rather than being directed to provide care by a hospital or a system. And so I'd always sort of seen that, I guess, as the the best way to provide women-centred care. But when I kind of came to it myself, I'd actually um, worked overseas and worked in other places and came to Toowoomba um, with my, my then husband and got here and there was there was actually like almost no visible midwifery really. There were there were midwives working in hospitals and um, just sort of in like normal wards, birth suites, you know, that kind of thing. But there was no way to access midwifery continuity of care. And so I kind of whinged about it for a while. And eventually um, Anthony said to me, well, I think you just, you're just going to have to do it. You're just going to have to do it yourself. You know, like you're not going to be able to wait for someone else to set up a practice or, you know, have that sort of model to work in. You're just going to have to go out on your own. And um, a few people told me I was going to get eaten alive and that I'd last six weeks and all this sort of stuff because it was a fairly medically dominated um, environment in Toowoomba. Um, but it was, it was, I guess, the start of me actually realising that we needed models that actually had funding that followed the woman um, and that the woman put the woman um, in the, you know, with the centre of the ability to actually choose her care provider based on funding. And I guess that that's kind of what led me then into the whole push towards Medicare because whilst 
you know, Medicare is certainly not a perfect system. We all know that, you know, it's it's fee-for-service, so it's activity-based at the moment. It is the only way that a woman can actually choose the model that she really, really wants and have that funded by, to some extent, by government. So she's actually then in the driving seat and can actually make the choices um, around the type of care that she's actually seeking. So I guess that's what that's what sort of led me into private practice and a little bit of the beginning of that pathway. So, so what did that look like? Um, because back then, this was before Medicare, before you almost had another layer of comp, not complications, well, it has resulted in complications, but qualifications. Um, so, so was it like a kind of call the midwife? Like how did it work? with the hospital because I know some private midwives now have to have visiting access to still maintain the care of the woman if she chooses to birth in the hospital. So what did that look yeah. like pre-Medicare? So pre-Medicare in so really pre-pre, like pre-pre-pre, like in the in the late 1990s, the midwives that we worked with um, in John Hunter, they had the same sort of visiting access arrangements as we do now with hospitals. They didn't have any funding, like so women um, presumably had to completely pay for the service. There was no Medicare to top it up, but they had a visiting access arrangement. Then when insurance fell over in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was no visiting access. There was no ability to provide any care in the hospital at all. So for that period, private practice looked like you were providing antenatal care to women in the community. If they were birthing at home, you could birth and look after them at home, albeit with no insurance, nothing, you know, nothing there. And then you could look after them postnatally. But the gap in that sort of area was then if the woman chose to or needed to or transferred to hospital, you then were basically, um, you know, demoted and your midwifery skills weren't considered to be relevant or meaningful. You were actually just there as the women's support person. And I guess that that was the part that I found then and still find now really, really tricky, that I think that for midwives to be able to provide, to be able to say that they're offering a whole service, they need to be able to provide that service wherever the woman chooses to or needs to birth. And I get that that's controversial. There's heaps of people that really disagree with that philosophy. But for me, um, unless you can offer, you can offer where, you know, the person, the, the model needs to be the most um, central decision. So the person, the midwife, the type of care you're having, the place of birth needs to be then the next decision that you're making. So you're choosing your midwife, you're assuming that regardless of what happens to you, that they can provide your care and then the place of birth becomes, um, is, is an important decision, but is a decision that flows on as the pregnancy progresses. So I guess that's what it looked like in those days. Um, and it was a very, it's very different to what we're doing now. Very, very different. Yeah, I want to touch on the, um, because we, I, I know, and, you know, some women have told me they preferred um, to have a midwife that didn't have visiting access so that midwife could advocate for them even though there was no um, clinical skills, I guess, um, provided. Um, how, how do you find that? Because I know that, that in your mind that true continuity is being able to birth 
with that, you know, support that woman in birth wherever she is. So I find that astonishing because if the midwife is not advocating for the woman, like if the midwife has visiting access and she's not still truly advocating for the woman, and I mean all holds barred, then that's that's a failing on the part of the midwife. That's actually that's actually not a failing on the model of care because your main job when you're in the system and you're providing care as the admitting clinician is to advocate for whatever it is that that woman's choosing. So there's sort of this myth that when you've got visiting access, you've got to comply with hospital policies. Well, like the same, it's the same old story as, as anything. If a woman wants to decline something and she's making a choice that is, you know, she considers is best for herself or her baby, and she's happy to, you know, basically take full accountability for that decision, then we've got no right to actually change that decision. That is her decision to make. She has the right to full bodily autonomy over that decision. And whether we're signed on to some access agreement or whether we're in there as a, I don't know, a doula or a support person or a, a midwife without visiting access, it should really make no difference. And in fact, I don't think you can fully advocate. If you're, if you're not the admitting clinician, it's very, very difficult to advocate. If you're the admitting clinician, at the end of the day, that's you're, you're admitting that woman. So she is actually under your care and you're basically calling the shots. And so I do find that whole, um, those notions that sort of come out a lot on social media and, you know, are out in the public commentary around, well, I'd prefer the midwife not to have visiting access. I find it really, really complex because I sort of go, well, if the midwife doesn't have visiting access, how can she assure you that she's actually going to be able to really fully make sure that what you're deciding, you know, is what happens? Oh, and I think like, and this is separate, but I think during COVID as well, um, that's one thing where it's become very obvious and, and we haven't seen the study released yet, but there is some really high quality evidence about around the midwives who've got the visiting access are actually insulating women against birth trauma, you know, because of the pandemic and, you know, having those circumstances where you can't just, you know, choose your birth support. Um, I want to talk about though, you, um, and it wasn't just you, but there was a group of you that lobbied very, very hard for visiting access. And I see in other states outside of Queensland, it is very, very difficult. What, what did you um, or and the group of women do, I guess, that because Toowoomba, like you can't argue that it's an easy place. I know how medicalised it is. It's, it would be ha have to be one of the most medicalised places. Yet you got in there. It's been now just over 10 years since you've had visiting access. Um, it hasn't always been easy. Um, I know that personally. How did you get in there and how have you maintained that relationship? Look, I think that the first thing to say is that it was interesting and, and the jurisdictional difference is really fascinating because basically when the whole, you know, when Medicare was decided and everyone was looking at um, how it was going to sort of be operationalised, Queensland was on its own in saying, look, we're not going to actually focus on how collaborative arrangements, which are part of the, you know, legislation around Medicare, we're not going to focus on that. We're just going to focus on visiting access and, 
and getting the midwives into visiting access arrangements in the hospitals. And I guess that um, part of that was the then uh, midwifery advisor, Belinda Mayer, had a really strong view around how that could roll out and how that could be done. Um, and I guess the other thing was that because I had worked both in the hospital here in Toowoomba and um, also in private practice in Toowoomba, the management of the facilities um, had, I had quite a long history with them and knew them very well. And so they also, I guess, were in a position of wanting to ensure that they could be seen to be being innovative. They wanted to make a change. I wouldn't take no, and I and the group of people I was working with wouldn't take no for an answer. And we did have to push pretty hard. It was it was tough, but it wasn't as tough as it could have been. I mean, if you look in other states, you know, decades on, it's still, there's still, you know, only a smattering of sort of opportunities. But once we, once we sort of got the access and actually could then start demonstrating outcomes, demonstrating what was happening for women. Um, I guess that the relationships grew and that people sort of um, in, a, in management positions recognised that women were being truly put at the centre in this model, probably in a way that they hadn't been in other, you know, in other options, in other models of care. And I won't say that it's easy because it's still at times is very, very difficult to maintain relationships because the advocacy is um, so paramount. And, you know, the women's choices are the most important element of it. And obviously there's going to be a lot of pushback um, within some areas of medicine at times um, at the choices that women are making. But I think when you do truly put the woman at the centre and actually say, well, she has the right to choose what she what she wants for herself and a baby, everything kind of strips away from that. So you're not, you're just left basically then with a very, um, a very easy decision-making process really. So that helps with a relationship sort of growth and maintenance. Um, but, you know. It's, do, do you it's, think too, like 10, 10 years on, now that you have a bit more data to support you as well, that that's made you a lot more confident in pushing? No? It, yeah, no, it, no, it de de no, it definitely has. I mean, it absolutely, you know, when I look at our data and I can, I can look at the data, even when we start in new hospitals, I know exactly what's going to happen for a period of about six to 12 months. You know, I know how the sort of things from a rates of cesarean section or whatever are going to go and how they're going to peak and trough over a period of time because people take time to get their trust up. So after 10 years, the trust is genuinely there, regardless of whether they're happy to see us or not. They're, the data speaks for itself. And so, you know, they know that we're not sort of running around, I don't know, having dramatically bad outcomes. Um, and obviously we're scrutinised very, very heavily. So it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty easy to see when there's a, a problem of sorts, um, both yeah. for us and for, for the hospital. Yeah, um, I wanted to talk now um, about Medicare um, because it, I've, I've mentioned it earlier before we came live that there is controversy that Versi around that, around, you know, um, there's the sectors within mainly the home birth community, I guess, that, you know, before Medicare, um, that things were a lot easier. Um, and I guess 
I wasn't around then. So, I mean, I can certainly um, understand where it's coming from, but I also know that medical lobbying is so powerful that there would have been some kind of uh, regulation uh, around home birth. Um, so how did Medicare come about? What, um, I guess, do you see perhaps has been more regulation that's come from it? I mean, I certainly yes. see the benefit as far as financial benefit for women and, and more equity there, which often I don't think gets acknowledged enough. Yeah, I think the thing, I think, first of all, sort of where it came from is obviously through the early 2000s, there were heaps of different reviews of maternity services and everyone was looking at how the models of care that we knew would make a big difference, you know, midwifery, midwifery continuity of care, how that would be able to be more broadly accessible to women. And Medicare, as I said in the beginning of this, was one of those sort of methodologies in that it gave funding that sort of follows the woman. I mean, it, obviously it's not enough, it's whatever, but it does follow the woman, the woman can choose it. So that was one of the reasons why. But you've also got to remember that at the same time, and I think this is where it gets really confused, is that we were actually moving to national registration at exactly the same time as Medicare was actually starting up. And it's, it's really sad that we've actually ended up with those two things got sort of intertwined in that the need for insurance um, was part of a national regulation scheme, nothing to do with Medicare. So it was, it was something that was happening off to one side and all of the problems that have occurred really around home birth have all been related to that. And it just happens to be that at the same time, we were going through the process of uh, getting Medicare arrangements in place. Um, and so at one point it, it looked like, and you'll, those of you that have been in maternity reform for a long time will remember the mother of all rallies because at one point it looked like we were going to be required to have insurance by the National Regulation Accreditation Scheme, so our national, um, our national regulation, and we were not going to be able to get it through the whole insurance process, therefore making home birth essentially unlawful. So there was, you know, that whole that whole getting an exemption for a requirement to have indemnity insurance came about sort of as a last minute stopgap measure to, to to prevent sort of home birth becoming completely unlawful and illegal. Um, but I think the fact that those two things happened at the same time has has always been very very um, fraught because it means that the home birth community feel that Medicare, the introduction of Medicare is what actually caused all the problems. When actual fact, it really was the change to national reg registration in some way that was a problem. However, the problems even really existed prior to that. You know, there were people being reported to APRA, well, not to APRA, sorry, to the nursing midwifery councils and those kinds of uh, state-based bodies in droves even before we got to the point of national registration and, and so forth. I guess the only thing that was introduced in Medicare that really has, I suppose, uh, prohibited or been problematic for home birth is the notion of collaborative arrangements. And collaborative arrangements are only a pathway into Medicare. So if by rights you don't care about funding or you don't worry about whether you want a Medicare rebate or not and you want your home birth midwife to 
care for you and not give you a Medicare rebate. Well, your collaborative arrangement is uh, something that you don't actually need. So there's a lot of Can, can we just talk about that, that um, if yeah, you don't sure. mind, the collaborative arrangements, yeah. because there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. And for those who want to know a little bit more about what Liz is talking about around Medicare and national registration, Bruce Teekle covered it in about episode 18. So for those who are jumping um, and not following, not that it's in sequence, but if you've jumped through some episodes, go back and have a listen to Bruce's um, because he actually talks about that. We cover a bit of the history. So can you, because there's a lot of misunderstanding too um, between visiting access and collaborative arrangements and, you know, um, and like you said, if, if you don't want Medicare, you actually don't need to worry about collaborative arrangements. Exactly. And so, so, so what are the of, types of collaborative arrangements, Liz? Yeah, yeah. So there's five different types and obviously each of them have their benefits and disadvantages. So the first one is that you're employed by an obstetrician. Well, you know, obviously not many obstetricians are employing midwives that are going off doing home births. So that's probably out the door, but you know, that's that's one alternative. The second alternative is that you've got some sort of signed collaborative arrangement with an obstetrician so a sort of an individual contract again for a home birth midwife that could be a little bit tricky the third one is that you referred you've got a referral pathway so it can be that a gp refers uh, a woman to a midwife um, and they've got that that's just you know like they would refer that a, um, a woman to an obstetrician um, the fourth one is that you've got what's called midwife written records so that you write backwards and forwards with um, a collaborating doctor. So uh, it could be the woman's GP, it could be a doctor that you collaborate with part of the time. And the fifth one is that you've got a credentialing arrangement with a public hospital or a hospital, so I should say not public hospital, but you've got a, you've got a visiting access arrangement and you're credentialed to admit your clients there. So once you've got that, that really, uh, that really decreases the level of scrutiny, if you like. So once you've got a uh, collaborative arrangement that is a credentialing arrangement, um, that's it. That's all you need. You don't need to actually do anything. Um, obviously, you're, you've got some requirements around how you collaborate and how you work with that hospital. But as I said, you know, if the client themselves, the woman themselves doesn't want to do something then you can't you know you're not going to force force that person to do something you actually just uh work through declining recommendations in care or whatever pathways you have either with the hospital or with the people that you're collaborating with and um obviously that's that's the end of the story so i guess that that's the five methods really i guess alicia yeah so i know that um for most pretty much all of your practices now work on the collaborative arrangement um, as far as the credentialing with the hospital. Um, and in my mind, I think that's where the intention of it was, um, but yet it didn't factor in that the gatekeeping that goes on at hospitals, and that's what we, we find is a huge drama in, in other areas for midwives to actually get. Because in my mind, how I think it was meant to work was that if a woman transferred, it was seamless transfer yeah. and everyone was supported you know let's kumbaya you know like that kind of and thing well, but but it actually yeah, yeah it, it doesn't necessarily work like that because there is so much resistance often in a lot of hospitals um so then it's kind of 
trying to rely on some of the other methods. And I know the first two that you mentioned are nearly a non-event because I haven't heard yeah. of really too many obstetricians that support home birth. Um, no. GPs is a really strange one because they're not experts in normal birth. A lot of them like have really outdated antenatal care qualifications yeah. anyway. Um, yeah. but, but it's interesting um, that that was ever added to Medicare because if it's about the woman, it really seems about medicine as a way of controlling midwives, which I think it has worked to a degree. Look, I think that, that I think that that's definitely I, I completely agree with you, and it definitely is that there's an element of gatekeeping. And obviously, from my perspective, I don't think there'd be anyone that would argue that collaborative arrangements are a positive thing, you know, in their current format. I think if there'd been some sort of methodology that allowed for visiting access arrangements in a different way, and that none of the other things needed to exist, then that would be fine. I think the reason that um, we've had some degree of success in Queensland is that we rapidly rolled out some models across Queensland using a fairly um, generic sort of process. And whilst that hasn't, you know, that hasn't fixed everything, it certainly has given a broader range of women access to midwifery care, both inside and outside of hospital, because for me, I, I get that, you know, like a lot of your listeners to this podcast will be totally focused and only focused on home birth. But I think we really do need to recognise that there are a large proportion of women who actually don't necessarily want to birth at home. And for them, this is this is the ultimate. You know, they can actually have their two Cs of VBAC in the hospital in water or they can have their... Uh, standing twin birth or their breech vaginal birth or whatever it might be that is a, a real reality now I know that I know I'm going to get strung up so don't, don't yeah, yeah. For, for, for the small amount no. of women who have those circumstances and still want to birth at home and that is always has and always will yeah. be a problem because oh, and I've talked to midwives about this and I 100% understand if a woman wants that she should but then we've got to find a woman, uh, a midwife who's willing to put almost her career on the line and then she can't, like her career's gone, she can't provide any care for any other woman. And if that's like and her then, passion and like that's her existence is being a midwife, I can understand why you would not want to be putting your career and livelihood on the line and, and often your soul's calling to provide that care. And, and you know, th there's a whole lot of things as far as human rights and you know, legislation, other things that would need to be worked through to even get to that stage. But, I mean, the other thing too, just for people to really be really cognizant of, is that these problems all existed prior to Medicare. So, like, it's it's kind of like I think that we, we think that Medicare has created those problems. Those problems still existed. We still had people having, you know, whatever it was out in the community. You know, we, we had all of that and people being reported to their state body rather than APRA in exactly the same ways, in exactly the same problems. You know, those of you that have seen even, there's, there's so much media around this in those early, early years prior to Medicare. So I think it's really important that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater around funding models when we're actually looking at what we need is, you know, philosophical uh, changes and we need 
sort of reforms in regulation and and the way that we deal with these issues and you're right they're you know they're basic fundamental human rights issues and there's lots and lots and lots of problems around them but it's not actually really set down in the funding stream if, you, if that makes sense look I think that that's, oh I, uh, yeah that's I absolutely agree because the issue is we tomorrow go well, don't worry about Medicare what about these poorer women you know, like it very much then becomes a white middle-class women's issue. I just want my home birth. Um, so we can't just do away with the funding model. We actually need to look at, yeah, the philosophy and culture around, you know, that, that you know, demonises women's rights. Um, can yeah. you talk to me about some of the other issues? Because for such a good model of care, we know like great outcomes for women, we we know that there's some great evidence coming around, out around data from the pandemic. We know that there's a 50% reduction in preterm birth for Aboriginal women and babies for private midwives that were employed by Aboriginal community health controlled organisations. Why? Yeah. Talk to me about some of the issues of getting into private practice, you know, like the prescribing, the insurance, you know, like, because so it, it just yeah, seems no like, it, like why, yeah. yeah, yeah, like why wouldn't midwives be scrambling to get into this model and get out of often the hospitalised model that they know that they're almost contributing to women's trauma and be able to work more autonomously, have more satisfaction? What are some of the problems? Look, I think that it, for me, this is probably where it really sets into my soul. Like, you know, I sort of start to go, this is the, these are the issues that really, you know, leave me lying there and thinking at night. The pathway is convoluted and really there is, there is no direct pathway. So the ability for midwives to actually come out and work, go straight into uh, a private practice model or a model, you know, a continuity model even, um, and be mentored and supported and nurtured through the first few years of their practice isn't there. The requirements around sort of um, hours and years and certain experiences and so forth have absolutely no evidence to back them up. So they're just, you know, they've just been plucked out of thin air, really. The whole prescribing being required to be at a postgraduate level is at odds with other similar systems in other parts of the world. So that's also a nonsense, really, if you, if you like. Um, so all of that really makes it a very muddy, messy process to actually even get in the door. But what really fascinates me is why once midwives have got that level of experience and have actually been out in the system for a period of time and have seen what happens to women, why they then aren't moving in droves once they've got the hours or they've got the ability to actually make that choice. And I guess that says a lot about um, us as a society, really, because, you know, controversially, obviously, it, it's, I expected that we'd see what we saw in New Zealand, which was that midwives after sort of five years, we had this mass exodus of 80% of midwives working as lead maternity carers. And we just have not seen that. And I don't know whether that is because they felt that it was, uh, you know, that it was too risky. I don't know whether it's discomfort with working outside of systems in, you know, both from a financial perspective, from a support perspective, uh, from a sort of a business perspective, you know, the things that they need to do to actually be able to sustain their own, their own practices. 
but it's it's probably the most fascinating thing to me is that we haven't seen any sort of shift really um, in that decade of, of midwives wanting to work this way because, you know, from my perspective, it's the most rewarding, satisfying, woman-centred, totally autonomous way of working. And I could never, ever go back to working inside a system. So I just, I, I find it absolutely fascinating. But I think there's also, there's also, you know, these difficulties that you talk about, some of the philosophical views that have splintered midwifery groups. So, you know, you'll have people that say that the only true midwifery is midwives that don't have visiting access or that only work at home and that kind of thing. So it splinters people's views of what um, is important in terms of the way that they provide care. So I think that that's, it's kind of a bit of a, you know, it's a difficult time um, culturally and philosophically for midwives at the moment. Yeah, and I think there's even the between, you know, there seems to be, well, um, and, and I don't think it's true, it's just a perception that there is like a bit of elitism amongst private midwives compared to hospital midwives. And some of that is the oppression by medicine, like the, the oppressed become the oppressors. And, and we see this kind of like, you know, like violence this way because of the hierarchy. And look, that's that's absolutely right. And I mean, and it and it's it goes down, you know, even deeper into that. Of, you know, the the way that women speak to and and deal with each other. Like it's it's such a difficult time that you know we we have sometimes lost the really important, you know, fundamental things. Because for me. If we get birth right and we get mothering right and we actually set up that whole oxytocin bonds, the love, the nurturing, things like the sustainability of our planet and the way that we actually care about each other actually changes. So I'm not saying that that's just as simplistic as it sounds, but I think that there's just no focus on us getting that right and so therefore all these other things just become layers and layers and layers on top of that you know and and we just we're not really making any major well we are in some areas but but in most areas we're not making any progress into that really at all we're kind of going backwards yeah and, and even the part where there is progress it's still at glacial speed um like a f f instance and this is like i'm not even going to disclose where i got it from so they're, they're, they're thinking that um, the continuity just from data provided is around continuing midwifery care is about 15% now. Uh, private midwifery care is 2%. Um, and we've still got about 0.5 home birth rate. Or is it 0.05? Is it 0.05, yeah. Okay. So, so even we know of private midwives, most women are still birthing in hospital. Um, so that... 15%, it, it, it is up, but but the last study at 8% was eight years ago. So if we add it up, we're only getting like a percentage increase per year. It's it's so, so slow. Um, I guess jumping back a we little know bit, what it, it sounds... We know it, what it'll it do. It sounds like we like need we... like a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, yeah. But but as far as jumping back, when, you were, when we were talking about the barriers to private midwifery, um, I think there are midwives with outstanding midwifery skills that then there is a huge gap jumping into business. And it's like, there's like so many of us and there's layers of it, you know, like being women and, and not having any business mentors and a whole range of things. So it nearly sounds like there's like a little almost niche for any private midwife who, who wants to create like a bit of a mentoring 
And I think you've done it in the past, but I think there are young midwives who are screaming out to get into private practice have done like their 5,000 hours in hospital. And for those who don't know, that's part of the, you know, un <laughs> like, I don't know, non-evidence-based requirement to go into private practice. Um, that, that there seems to be a little bit of like a bridge that needs building there. Oh, there definitely is a bridge that needs building there. And I think that it's, it's that mentoring and that support to actually move into private practice. Um, the New Zealanders also found that really difficult. You know, there was lots and lots of challenges for New Zealand midwives as the model shifted in New Zealand. Um, and I think that really we probably are in a, like a much worse position, obviously, but, but we also had those sorts of issues and barriers here. And I don't know that anyone really has picked that up in any great level of uh, intensity. You know, there's been lots of attempts to do it in different ways by different organisations, um, but, you know, it hasn't been you know, a wholehearted success. And you're right, there are lots of midwives now around. There's been a, a bit of a shift, I think, in the last sort of 12 months around COVID where people are going, well, you know, do I actually want to do this this same way anymore? You know, they're being restricted from face-to-face -face access with people. They don't like the way that care is being provided. So they're wanting to move out of, out of um, hospitals into the community and into potentially into private practice. Um, but they, they find that a really big step. And I get that that is, that is tough. So, yeah, we do need to see somebody somewhere build a bit of a bridge and try to work out the ways what support is needed and, and move that forward. And I think that's really a big, a big need at the moment. Yeah, and it's, I mean, as you know, review after review, we had the National Maternity Plan, we've got the new strategy, all mentions around community-based care and, you know, it's like, yep, we know what needs to happen, it just needs to be done. Um, finally, can you um, tell me your thoughts on why you think birth is the forgotten feminist issue? Yeah, well, look, I think it's such, a, that's a, such a complex question. And I've, I've thought about it so many times since you started this, this podcast. And, you know, I've, I've thought about why, why it is forgotten. And look, I, I can't give you all the layers, obviously, but one of the biggest layers for me came at a meeting that you and I actually attended together, which was with Larissa Waters when she was quite pregnant with her second child. And I think she I was, was too. And you were too. It wasn't your second child, though, my love. I'm sure it was a bit further down. That was the track number four. Yeah. Yeah. But she was, you know, negotiating and talking through some of the big, you know, issues for political issues of the day and, you know, rushing from meeting to meeting. And she was hot and she was really, really, you know, overwhelmed and, and very pregnant. And I thought to myself, this is part of the reason that it's forgotten. And the reason is that there's so few women who have had babies that work in, in our political system, that work in our high levels of bureaucracy, that work in that space, because obviously mothering and those sorts of lifestyles are very, very difficult to align, it, you know, virtually impossible to align in many respects. And you look at what they, what those women that do do it have to sacrifice to actually get there. 
But, but if we don't have that, the understanding about what it is that is required, which is actually quite simple, but, it, but it's lost because people are not actually looking at it from a lived experience. They're looking at it from a completely different set of eyes. There's nobody in positions of power that really uh, value the whole experience and don't really recognise that truly tra transformation really could come very quickly and easily for so many areas of our life, particularly for First Nations people, particularly for women that are young, women that have lots of complexity in their lives. The differences that could be made for them from women from midwifery continuity care are so profound. And yet we've got just, you know, it's it's just forgotten. It's not even, it's not even on the radar at all because we just have so uh, such a limited view of it from a political and power perspective. So look, I mean, that's only one tiny little layer of why, because I think that it's such a, such a complicated um, question and so complex that we are just forgetting about the value of, of women at all, really. And I think that, that, that this really is, is sort of pivotal and fundamental to that is the way that we actually treat women in birth is just down the bottom almost of the whole whole pile really yeah and it's it's crazy given that over 80 percent of women give birth yet we're, we're well and truly forgotten <laughs> well and truly and, forgotten and, 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 and politics particularly but but as you've you pointed out and and i've seen it in canberra and when i've taken my kids there you know they stick out like sore thumbs it is not a welcoming place for women. It's not a welcoming place for mothers. Um, I, I even, you know, if anyone's watched that misrepresented um, the the mini yeah. doco on politics, yeah. Yeah. it's that there's a bar that was um, transformed into a childcare centre, and that was only like, you know, it's within the last fifteen years. It, it you know, prior to that, it, you know, it's just like let's sit around and drink piss. Yeah, and I mean, look, I think that that's. You know, if we don't get positions, if we don't sort of get that interface between power, money, medicine, you know, and women, that whole interface sort of shifted in some way, we will continue to be at the bottom of the pile because it actually would take such a little bit of a shift from a financial perspective for governments, from a philosophical perspective in hospitals. You know, it's it's not actually rocket science, this sort of stuff. And what we're seeing in First Nations women just shows that just profoundly. But unless we've got a bit of a shift in politics and money and power, you know, the rest of it just doesn't seem to move at all. And obviously over the couple of decades that I've been really heavily involved in lobbying and advocacy, um, it's, you know, it's it's been hasn't moved a lot you know it, it yeah and okay you know it's moved a little bit but but there's still a very 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 long way to go yeah thanks for coming on thanks for listening if you'd like to work with me and some of my amazing short courses i've got pre and postnatal yoga online. I've also got hypnobirthing classes for those in rural and remote locations. You can join via Zoom. And I've also got a new course called Mastering People Pleasing to Have an Amazing Birth. It's great for those who are perfectionist or 
reform perfectionists, that type A personality and those have been indoctrinated um, into that people-pleasing model, you can head to www.aliciastains.com.au for more info.